And uh, for those who are interested in the dove hunt, I sent the information to Matthew um, so he can send it out. And David Dixon Jr. is in charge and he has asked if you're interested in going that you contact him about a hotel room. So if you have any other questions, Jay's been, he might be able to fill you in more about it, but it starts, the uh, season starts September 1st and they're booking rooms starting on the 31st so that you can go out first thing in the morning on the first to, to hunt. <clears throat> Excuse and me. Everybody should have that in their email. I forwarded it on this afternoon. Good, thank you. All right. so. We're looking at um, decision-making in the church, and we're going to look at two aspects. One's doctrine, one's discipline. We're going to start with discipline. And so um, I hope what I say tonight isn't too unusual. It might be unusual for what you've had practiced in the past, but I will try to support what I say um, with Scripture. So discipline is simply training. It is not a synonym for excommunication or putting someone out of fellowship even though some people use it that way. All correction and exercise and training are disciplines, beginning with simple um, instructions to uh, things that would go even farther than that. And putting someone out of the fellowship is the most serious discipline is sometimes a culmination of unsuccessful attempts to solve a growing problem. It's important to understand the lesser steps that elders can take as they work with someone struggling with personal problems that could become public sin. In other words, prevention is better than the cure. Oh, Dave Walter did make it. Are you all right, brother? I'm good, sir. Just running a little late today. Sorry about that, guys and ladies. We we, we thought it maybe it was a tough commute, but then we we thought you maybe you're just resting after your procedures. No, no, no. Okay. So there's a couple of questions that, um, and unfortunately, I probably should have ordered the questions better than I did. And also I have to apologize because one of the references, I dropped a digit. So that reference probably made absolutely no sense. And it made no sense because I dropped the digit. So, so the first question is, is, is discipline progressive? Ooh. Ooh. Dave, your mic's still on so we can hear you ooing and sighing. <laughs> you don't all have to answer at once. What do you mean by progressive? Does it mean it gets more severe, the discipline itself? or Yes. So it, in that aspect, yes, I would, I would say it is a little progressive. I mean, we kind of have two forms of discipline. I guess you have like a public rebuke and then being put out. Is that correct? Is that two forms in itself or is that one form? I guess I would kind of think it's two forms, like kind of, so it could be progressive. Okay. Yeah, so I, I would probably say a public rebuke and we'll look at some of the scriptures that talk about that. So, um, and so the third question, which goes along with this, which is, which should have probably been the second question, does all discipline end in excommunication? And the no. answer would be, it'd be no. All right. So a couple, um, let's look at a couple passages on, on um, discipline that I outlined there. 
The first one is Matthew 18, 15 through 17. I think I got that, one, that, I got that reference right. And it says this, um, I'm going to read from the ESV tonight. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So um, too often in my experience, everybody sees every sin as a Matthew 18 situation. I've had, I've been in elders meetings where you brought up a sin and the first thing was, did you go to that brother? Well, not every sin, in my opinion, is a Matthew 18 situation. It, it, I think Matthew 18 is referring to personal offenses, not for general sin. And as we, as we go through here, and particularly when we get to 1 Corinthians, we'll see that there are some sins that are morally repulsive sins. And if a person is involved, if a person's involved in a fornication situation, that's not a personal offense against me. And yet I've had people say, well, that person's living out of wedlock and had someone say, well, did you go to them? Matthew 18 says you have to go to them. No, I would disagree with that statement. And I would tell you that I believe Matthew 18 is for personal offense. So if someone offends me, um, belittles me, uh, um, is condescending to me, calls my wife, tells my wife a name, something that that would be offensive in that nature then i think that's when you go to the brother uh, and try to win that brother and try to appeal to him from scripture of why his actions are wrong um ultimately though if you cannot win him ultimately it would be up to the church to decide but once again there needs to be two or three witnesses and not just take two or three witnesses it, you need to take people who have actually seen the offense and know the offense it's not bad to take people with you when you meet with someone to see his reaction or to, to be a witness to what you say or how you say it. Because a lot of times when you confront someone over a sin, they're going to accuse you of being harsh or unloving or not being humble. And so sometimes it's good to take a brother with you so that they can witness your attitude, witness your words and be a testament to, to how you handle the situation. But ultimately um, it's for something the church has decided it's not something the elders need to decide. And I think we've, our fallback position is for the elders to handle all discipline. And as we go through here, I think we're going to see that it's not, it's not, I don't think elders should handle all the discipline. I don't think that's what scriptures teach. The next one in progressive discipline, um, I'd say would be a first step discipline is Galatians 6 1. In Galatians 6 1, brother, if anyone be caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch for yourself, lest you too be tempted. And there are times when people are caught in a transgression. It might be they lose their temper. They um, act out in the flesh. They do something which is um, spiteful, harmful, vengeful, something that they shouldn't do. And a lot of times it's a one-time act. And that's where someone who is spiritual needs to approach them in gentleness and meekness and needs to correct them, instruct them, um, making sure that um, they know that they're a brother, that, that they're being treated 
as someone and that you are just as likely to have fallen into that type of sin or able to do that type of sin. There's none of us who have not at some point in time got mad if, at, at, for some reason or in some way. And that's the idea is that you need to, you need to go in a spirit of meekness, knowing that it's a fault that in, in James, it says that Elijah was a, was a man much like us. And God used him mightily. God used Peter mightily, but there were times that they failed. And we need to think of that. And Peter's restoration would be a good point in, in, in that. A next step in discipline is we read in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And one of the issues with elders is that you have elders who are proactive and elders that are not. And a proactive might see someone beginning to slip in these areas or begin to do something that would be questionable and they can go to that brother and admonish and, and correct him in a in a gentle way not in a harsh way because if you don't do it early on sometimes then that becomes a habitual habit or it's got repeated enough time that then it becomes a problem for the whole assembly and so it um one of the problems with legalism is when legalism you set a standard that everybody has to outwardly meet and you really don't get to know or have to know the individual as an individual. So you don't know what's on their hearts. You don't know what's making them tick. You don't know what's overtaking them or what type of sin they might be, be snared in. So one of the things here that's important is, is if a brother's idle and he doesn't work. And so Paul, and so Paul goes on to say that if, um, if a brother doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And so it's important that um, you are able to divide out who's, who's idle, who's weak, who's faint, who needs more patience, who needs more encouragement, who needs you know, to be pushed along a little bit more. That's, and then 2 Thessalonians 3.11, uh, we'll look at that. Um, it, there are times that elders, either because they're respecters of persons, because they like someone, because they, they um, have a relationship with that one, that they can be reluctant to go to a brother and admonish him or to talk to him about an issue or a fault. I, I've struggled with that in the past as someone I've known well. And to go to them and say, brother, you don't always tell the truth. You, you tend to exaggerate situations a lot. And you're afraid that if you really point out that he has an issue in that area, that he'll turn on you and not like you and, and then smear your name or, or make your life miserable. And so to keep the friendship, you don't approach him. And that's, that's a real danger. And, and it it's really means that you really don't love the brother. You really love yourself and your relationship you have with that brother more than you love that brother and, and feel like you want to correct them. 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 and 15. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. No, no such person we command and encourage the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As, you, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 
So a couple of things of note here. If a brother is in need, we are to help them. But there's a really fine line to know when a brother is lazy and not working and when the brother's in need. And I've, and I've been asked, um, as I visit assemblies, I'm sometimes asked that, what, what do you think we, is a situation? I said, you gotta know the family, you gotta know the situation. If unemployment's high, and particularly if he's if he's in a trade that has high unemployment, and he, and you believe he's out looking for a job and he can't find a job and there's a real need there, help is 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 what the church should do. However, if he's not looking at a job and he's just waiting for handouts and he's being idle, and he's not helping in any way, then it's usually an indication then that there, there's an issue. And so it takes discernment, it takes understanding. You have to know the person. Sometimes you have to help them look for a job. Sometimes you can suggest jobs to them. Sometimes you can help them network to find a job. But if, if they're not doing any of those things and, then, and, and you're just helping them, then you don't wanna be used and you don't wanna enable them to, to be a busybody or, to be, or, or not to work. The second thing here is to be a busybody and a busybody is one that goes from house to house and through gossip or false teaching, lead people astray or cause division in the church. And that, once again, you have to recognize and know that that's happening. And once again, that's a fine line because I know I've been in the situation, I think Matt, one of the Matts has been in that situation where people come to you because they see you as a leader and they'll share with you something they see is wrong or an experience or talk about a problem or an issue in the church. And if you go then to the elders, the elders will call you a busybody. They say, no, we think you're just recruiting people to cause this problem. This problem really doesn't exist. You're just out there drumming up business. And so they accuse you of being a busybody. So once again, you have to be discerning and have a fine line to know who's the leaders, who would approach people. I remember when I was quite younger, we had elders and there was a problem in our assembly that was pretty rampant and pretty obvious to everyone but the elders, I think. And I went to the elders and talked to them and they said, no, you're the only one who thinks that. And there were people coming to me complaining about it. So I said, when they came to me next time, I said, well, don't, don't complain to me because it doesn't do any good. You need to go to the elders. And they said, we were too intimidated to go to the elders. So I said, I would go with them. So I went with them to the, to the elders and they talked to the elder and the elder was very nice and, and said, oh, well, well, we'll have some teaching on that subject then because it sounds like we need that. And then he left and he walked into a room where my wife and my mother and other people were sitting and they said, oh, did you see the young men? They were looking for you guys. And, he, and his response was, yes, Clay was just trying, Clay convinced people that, of a problem that only he sees to try to testify to it. So they didn't get it at all, and they had already decided that I was just trying to stir up troubles or was a busybody. So even when I brought other people to them that tested to the same thing or said that that bothered them also, rather than hear it or recognize it, they just assigned it to me as recruiting people to be on my side. So it's really important that we're very discerning if we're going to call someone a busybody or we're going to claim that someone does things in that in that fashion. All right, now we go, I think, to a little bit more of a step in discipline. 
And the reference was Romans 6, 17. The, Romans, the reference should have been Romans 16, 17. And I left the one out in front of the six. So my, my apologies. I wondered why I was doing in Romans 6 because I knew I shouldn't be there. And I realized, I checked my notes again. I realized it should have been Romans 16. So Romans 16, 17 is, I appeal to you, brethren, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid them. And so brothers that cause division are those that concentrate on a certain doctrine and teach and try to line up converts to their way of thinking. This is often something that the brother believes in so strongly that it comes up in every opportunity as an opportunity to talk about it. The end result is the body can be divided by this brother. The body must be warned about such a brother. Their opportunity to propagate their doctrine must be, uh, must be managed to the point of their being avoided. You know, I'm talking a lot. If you guys have a comment, wave your hand at me or turn your mic on and start talking because um, we have some stuff to cover and I don't want to go too fast. But if you have a comment or you see something that you want to. So in this case, it's to avoid a brethren who causes division. And that can be done a number of ways. You, you might not let him ever take the platform because he always tends to teach this. And the doctrine could be a number of things. He might believe in a post-trib rapture. He might believe in a mid-trib rapture. He might believe in something um, such as a very strong Calvinist that sees everything in, in, that, in that vein. Or he, or he might be, heaven forbid, he might be even, it, but these aren't doctrines that should split the church or doctrines that should cause um, him to be removed from the fellowship, but these are doctrines that the rest of the body do not agree with, have come to an agreement on those doctrines, such as a doctrinal statement. They've agreed. It's not about the deity of Christ. It's not about, it's usually about um, eschatology. Um, it's usually about prophecy. He might be reformed in his doctrine and see the church as replacing Israel. Those things, while not great doctrine, are, if he always talks about, and that's the only thing you can talk to, and when you ask him not to bring those subjects up, he continues to do so, then you are to mark him and avoid him. And then Titus 3, um, 10 and 11 is much the same way. As a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinfully self-condemned. Now, once again, it depends on the doctrine that he's teaching. It might be more in line with the, it, with, um, Romans 16, that it's not a, a basic doctrine that you, you have to agree on in order to be saved, but it might just be a pet peeve that he pushes a lot. But it also, um, I think this is done in degrees and depends on the doctrine he's using to cause division. If it's false teaching, then this could lead to being removed from the fellowship. If he's, if he's warped and sinful, he's self-condemned, then it would be that you remove him for false doctrine. If they're denying the deity of Christ, there's no, you know, that's that's a no doubter. If he teaches on the temptations and he starts to hint that he thought Jesus could sin, or he doesn't state it very well and it comes off like he thinks he might be be able to sin, that's a brother you might take aside and talk to him about his doctrine. If he says, No, I believe Jesus was fully capable of sin because he was fully man. That's something you have to deal with. That's something you just can't allow him to teach or to, or to push because that's false doctrine. And, and you have to be very careful 
with how you deal with that. If it's, if it's a misspoken word, you can take him aside and correct him. If it's something he truly believes and he can't live without and he's going to push it and push it, then it's something you have to take the next step about. All right. So, Clay, where it says in Romans, avoid them, do you take that to mean being put out of the assembly? Or? I, I do not. I, I take it to mean don't let him teach. Um, don't let him, you know, be a, be a teacher. Don't let him um, have a platform. Make sure people know that his, you know, his doctrine's wrong. I don't take that as excommunication. I take, I take the, the one in Titus, though, as excommunication as a next step. So you've warned him, you've told him he's he's not changing. He ends up to be self-condemned. And so with any sin, one of the things to know is why why are they doing it? And if they're self-willed and they refuse correction, then there's there's a number of problems there and they and they all those problems need to be dealt with because a lot of times it's just not doctrine. A lot of times it's just rebelliousness and, and self-will. And so you have to know what's causing the issue. And if he's just, if he just needs to be an individual and he needs everyone to know that he's different, then you need to deal with that in that way. And one of those ways is to avoid him. If his doctrine is just false, then you would remove him. So David, what, what type of doctrine even would you think would be um, avoiding and what type of doctrine you think would be putting out? Right. So I think uh, for putting out, it's like you said, clear cut. So if, the, if someone's holding to a position which is contrary to those specifically outlined, for example, in the doctrinal statement, then they are holding to a different gospel, I think, right? Yes, you know, the, they're holding to a Christ, the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture, you know, those, those are non-negotiables, right? The impeccability of Christ. Right. Now, there are issues, like you said, I can still continue to have fellowship with somebody that holds to a mid or post-trib rapture, unless that's an issue that they are so enamored with that they paraded around the assembly causing division because of it. Right. And then I think even though that's a background issue that wouldn't result in having to put somebody out, it can rise to that. Yeah. If, if they, you know, use it to create divisions. Right. So if you do everything you can to work with that brother and he continues to, to, to cause division, he continues to push it. He won't, he won't, um, he, he won't listen then at some point it escalates to the Titus 3, 10, and 11, where, where I think further action's needed. But it would be progressive, I think. And it, you'd have to be patient, and you'd have to give them time to change, to recognize, allow the Spirit to work on him to recognize. But I know you've done this, that if he stood up at the platform, he started teaching something which was truly false, you would have to stop up and say, brother, that's wrong. And that's where that's where you have to note them and mark them is that they're really teaching something smart. Sometimes you just have to stop it. And it's not, it's not pleasant. It's not easy, but you can't allow them to teach something that's false. Yeah. I know at, at Palms, there's a fellow who's no long, who has since moved away years ago, but he was a staunch Calvinist and we just 
never had him take the platform. Right. I mean, so he, you, he didn't promote it, so that that's fine, yeah. but, you know. Well, I'm not a staunch Calvinist, and if you stood up and preached Calvinist doctrine, I would stand up and teach the opposite the following Sunday. But if we sat you down and said, we don't want you to teach that every time you stand up, you need to teach other things, and he can't get off of that. I mean, I, I have a friend who goes to a church in, near Magic Mountain here in California, and his pastor sees Calvinism in every passage of the scripture. And he has to bring it out in every passage. He finally left the church because he just couldn't handle it every passage of the scripture. But there are some people who have a pet doctrine that they see it in every, every word and every line and every precept. And so I can have people who disagree with me on what I consider non-essential doctrines. But if they continually preach it, or every time they have an opportunity, they're going to try to tell us we're wrong. After a while, that causes division. And that's a really a rebellious spirit. And then you have to take it to the next step. Then, then it goes from, from Romans 16 to Titus 3 situation in my mind. That's why I'm talking about progressive. You, you warn, you work with them, you're patient. But if it doesn't change and it continues to be, and then there's a rebellious spirit that goes along with it, or there's an arrogance that goes along with it, I'm right and everybody else is wrong, then you have to take it to the next step. Hey, Clay, can I jump yeah. in for a second? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you are aware that um, Bill McDonald's uh, commentary, Bible knowledge commentary, that his, his treatment in Romans is really along the sovereignty of God. He wouldn't call himself a Calvinist, maybe, but he, he certainly leans that way. And um, so, I mean, there are people in the assemblies who uh, don't necessarily agree with the Arminian point of view. And and usually we, uh, over the years, we have tolerated each other. We, we love and respect each other. And we, you know, somebody will take a more uh, sovereignty of God position. Somebody else will take more of a free will of man position. And I think we can work together in harmony. If someone, if someone pushes a doctrine, though, if someone pushes, if someone pushes Arminianism, which is much more different than just free will, but if they push Arminianism, and, or they push Calvinism to the point that if you don't believe it, you're a sinner, or this is the only way to look at scripture, or they find it in every passage, and they don't listen. And, and I, I don't know, um, I know very few who are very strong Calvinists in the assemblies, at least in the people I associate with. Um, most of the people I know that are very strong Calvinists teach at Emmaus, and there are real issues with some of the teachers at Emmaus and their Calvinism. Several of my teachers at Emmaus were on the Calvinistic side. Yeah, they're 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 those who are there now who are very Calvinistic. Yeah, and um, you know, but once again, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing if the elders approach you and say that's not what we want taught here. That's not what that's that's not what we believe in. If that's what the elders take a position on, and then once again, it depends on how it's taught. I mean, if it's taught that you're a sinner because you don't believe in that, and most people who call themselves Calvinists, in my experience, when I've sat down and talked to them, don't even understand what Calvin is, what Calvin taught, and they've and they've taken sort of a um, generic, changed the terms, changed it into some generic differences. We could go over this point by point. Mike Atwood, um, uh, uh, I, I raise, raise, Ray tends to be more of a Calvinist than I am, and I've sent him um, 
um, the latest book that I think is excellent on explaining some of those doctrines. Um, I think there's I think two he, ways. He, he, this Calvinism example is just that it's, it's, there's a plethora of, of examples right. we could use, right? And so I think the key is what it says in Romans, mark them which cause divisions. Right. That, that's the turning point, right? That's right. what it hinges on. So if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Right, right. Or that's you're gonna problem. you're gonna drum up some support amongst some right. right? Or you're gonna you're gonna recruit people so that you can go to the elders and say, These fifteen people agree with me on this doctrine and you guys need to change your mind on it. That's what we're talking about. Yes, Joe. Is there a point where it comes where you forbid them to break bread when it comes to as it says of avoiding them? I think it I think it if you get to the Titus three situation where um, you've warned them once, you've warned them twice, you've asked them not to do it, you've asked them to back off, that they're causing the division and they're simply being rebellious and they won't listen, then it, then they're um, warped, sinful, and self-condemned. And so it, it, it's not, he believes it. Believing it, believing that doctrine, I have no problem if someone wants to believe that. That's their personal conviction. It's when they use it to divide, that's when it becomes an issue. And if they're actively doing that and you've warned them, you've tried to appeal to them, you've let them know that you're not interested in dividing the flock or trying to force the flock to divide, that's the difference. And it could be any number of doctrines, any number of doctrines. My dad, unfortunately, um, he had pet peeve doctrines and he wouldn't fellowship with someone who didn't agree with him. And they were, they were, I mean, I, I'll tell you one, um, Uplook Magazine years ago came out with an article and the article has said that the Lord sweat drops of blood while he was in the garden. And um, my dad wrote the editor to Uplook and said, the scriptures say, as it were drops of blood, it wasn't real blood. And the editor wrote him back and said, we give our writers liberty in, in an area like that. And my dad dropped the subscription because he just wouldn't couldn't fellowship with someone who thought the Lord shed blood in in the garden. So we're not talking to, because that's a brother in in many ways. That's a brother. That's a brother who causes division. That he's so locked into his pet peeve doctrines. Maybe that would have been a better example than Calvinism. He's so locked in that he he doesn't fellowship with people who don't agree with him on this pet doctrine. That, that you're not, you can't even, he can't even have fellowship with you. He can't even treat you as a brother because of what I consider an extremely minor doctrine and we won't know until we get to heaven. I, I Those doctors, I mean, that, I would never divide over something like that because I'm not even sure exactly, what does it mean like it, like it were? Some people have shown physiological evidence that it could very well have been blood coming out of his forehead. Who knows what it was? We're not really told. Can we just accept we're not told? We're going to find out when we get to heaven? Or we're going to break fellowship and cause division over a really minor doctrine? And I think that's what we're talking about here. And Calvinism might have been a bad, a bad, but I've known people who see Calvinism in every verse and that's all they can preach and that's all they can teach. And they, they push it and they push it and they push it and they push it. And that's not right either. It's 
especially if the Maybe. elders have agreed that, that they're not Calvinists and they're not Arminian, but they're going to try to take a middle ground in those areas. Would this just stop at doctrine? Like, I, I kind of what I'm basically seeing is, is when people, so we're talking about doctrine, when people preach a doctrine to, and it's pushed to the point in, of creating division in the church, then it needs to be dealt with. Yes. There's a lot of other things like inter, some interpersonal stuff and things that could create division in the church too. Um, and I think that needs to be dealt with as okay, well. Give us, give us an example, Matthew. Uh, now you're putting me on the spot. Um, just like, uh, you know, like family issues or, um, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, like where people are flaunting what they have and people are not feeling so uh, accepted or I'm, I'm, right. I'm sorry. It, I didn't really have a good example. I just know that interpersonal so, issues create division so, in an assembly just so, as much as doctrine does. And I feel like it's an issue that needs to be addressed from time to time as well. Okay. So I think some of those fall under Galatians six one. That's an, a brother overtaken in a fault. So they're, they're um, keeping up with the Joneses. They, you know, they brag all the time about the school their children go to. They brag all the time about their job. They brag all the time about, you know, who they know, what they know. They just tend to be a little on the arrogant side. I think that's a brother overtaken in a fault. And then I think it's up to the elders to take that brother aside and talk to him. But I think that's what takes a proactive elder. And I don't think that happens. That doesn't happen enough. And then it ends up to be a bigger sin. Instead of confronting the sin on, on the early basis when it's not as big of a sin, they let it go and let it fester. And as we said earlier, um, let me see if I can find it, uh, that um, prevention is better than the cure. It's hard to cure something if, it, if it's a full-blowing tree. It's easier to pull it out if it's a little sampling. And so if a brother's overtaken in a fault, that's why I see it progressive. We don't wait until it's an excommunication issue. My, my sense in the assemblies that I have dealt with is they, they're, they're afraid of, of conflict. They're afraid of confrontation. They let things go. They let things go. They let things go. They're, they're, they're not proactive. They tend to be inactive. And then the thing blows up in their face because now he's offended a number of brothers by an action he's done, or he's done something which pushes it over. So now they've got to act. We had a brother in our, in our assembly that, was very sarcastic and very rude and said things all the time. And my fellow elders just didn't, would just shake their head and just be frustrated with him until he turned on the elders one Sunday when I wasn't there and dressed them down in front of other people in the parking lot. And then I immediately got a phone call. We need to deal with this. <laughs> this has gone too far. Well, that was consistent with his character up to then but they were unwilling to deal with it until he did it to them or he did it in a public, more public way. But here's a brother, when I was done speaking, he walked up to me and go, wow, you finally said something I agree with today. You know, that's just how he, who he was very critical, very um, cynical. But then he told the elder, the two other two elders one time in the parking lot, you guys aren't elders. I never considered you elders and you're total failures of elders in a rather loud public voice. And they immediately wanted to take action. Well, he had been his attitude and he had sort of an arrogant, judgmental attitude the whole time. They never wanted to deal with it when, 
when I believe it was an overtaken and a fault and could have been dealt with on a whole different level, they wanted to excommunicate him once he criticized them in public. And so that's what I'm talking about. We, we tend to put it off till it becomes an issue of excommunication when it never should have been. It should have been handled as a brother overtaken a fault. It should have been, as you said, it should have been handled. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking of those type of things that are interpersonal. The person has some bugs or some rough edges or just grates on people the wrong way. And rather than challenge that person and talk to that person and get that person to maybe see the error of their ways from scripture, you let it go until it explodes and everybody's upset with him or he does something which just is so outrageous. Everybody feels you gotta act. You gotta get him out of here. You just, we just can't handle it anymore. And Does so, that make sense? No, 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 I mean, totally makes sense. But you also said at the beginning that you don't think the elders are in charge of discipline. So uh, well, you're kind of saying the, the elders do this, and, but would it actually well, be the so job I, of the men I, of the church? As we've gone through, the elders are not the ones who excommunicate. Hmm. But the elders are in charge of, as the spiritual ones of those overtaken in a fault. They are the ones who are in charge of, of if someone's causing division to try to put an end to that. Because they're the ones who should know the word of God well enough. Can I, can I jump in? <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Well, I mean, the elders are not the ones who would uh, excommunicate. I mean, who would then? Uh, I well, just feel like good question. Taken, let me finish. They've got to take a responsibility for the church if it's doctrinal, if it's a moral issue, and it's because the elders have been hopefully working with these people. So I mean, you know, what, what are you going to have three or four guys who are not elders take the lead on that? I don't, I don't quite understand that. Uh, we're not talking about taking the lead. So let's get to that. So we're at that passage now. It's a good question because that's the next question. So 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13 says this, I wrote unto you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedier swindlers or idolaters since they would not, they would need to go out to the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church who, who you are to judge. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So there are specific immoral sins that cause a brother's salvation to be in doubt. In the King James, it says that someone who's a so-called brother. In this, and here it says, who bears the name of a brother. In other words, their sin is so habitual and so horrendous that you doubt whether they're saved. They're calling, they're, they're, they're destroying the name of Christ by calling themselves, by claiming that name. And so in order to disassociate himself from the name, then there's specific acts. And the, and the Greek tense here gives the idea that it's habitual, repeated, continual acts. It's not a one-time error. It's habitual, com, continued, repeated act. So the question number two, which is out of order here, is who is responsible for discipline and why? So ultimately, as Jeff said, I do believe that elders need to take the lead because up until now, they've been in the lead in all these other situations. But ultimately, excommunication, who makes that final decision that someone should be excommunicated? The whole church would, I guess. Yes. Okay, I just didn't quite understand it. And I, I think that if we 
didn't have the elders taking the lead and demonstrating through the whole process because they're the mature brothers and they know these things. I mean, who in the body is going to do it? So, I mean, so I want to, I want to be really careful how I answer this because I've been in assemblies where the elders did the discipline and then informed the church that this person has been excommunicated. No, no, no. Believe, they would have to do the, do it scripturally, taking it to the whole church. Right. I don't believe that's scriptural and that's what I'm talking about. Okay. And I've seen that happen in more than one assembly. Multiple assemblies, multiple times. Can you, so, can, you repeat yes. what, can you repeat what you just said? You don't want the elders to talk to them and then write no. a letter and then write a letter and read it to them, to the assembly? You don't want that? I don't want the elders making the decision that someone should be disciplined. Because I don't think it's scriptural. But then, and why is that? Yeah. So, so here's a verse. But then you're going to take a popularity vote. You know, not a popularity gonna... vote. It's not a popularity vote. Now, if you have a very carnal assembly, it might be a popularity vote. But hopefully they have a spiritual assembly because you have decent elders who are leading a spiritual assembly. All right. So here's the verse. Here's the verse that would support that. There's a couple of verses that support that. So here's one. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is spent with the power of Jesus. This is an action in, in verse four of, of chapter um, five. Paul is saying this is an action the whole assembly takes. Elders may take the lead, but the entire, the entire assembly must have one mind and resolve that this discipline will not work. What happens is when the elders sometimes make a decision and discipline, the rest of the assembly does not support that or is not informed enough to support it. And they continue to fellowship with the person and then feel great animosity of the action that was taken. And it actually causes more problems. Yes, David. Um, Paul says in verse five, he says, I have decided to deliver such a one to say, uh, where, where are we getting it? It just says when you are assembled and I with you with the power of the Lord, I have decided to deliver such a one. So Paul made that decision himself. Paul is telling them that they, he's appealing to them to do the right thing. He's not ordering them to discipline this brother. Well, the point was that this man was living with his father's mother. I take it to be he was remarried. This was not his actual physical mother, yeah. but he was living in sin. So that Paul says not even the Gentiles do stuff like that. And you are puffed up. You are not dealing with it. And so Paul says, I'm going to step in and I'm going to take that place and we're going to deliver this fellow over. And then he writes them a letter of instruction, telling him the need for repentance. And then later on in 2 Corinthians, he tells them how to bring the man back. But Paul did take the leadership and the church of Corinth needed that, you know. So, well, I so, so Matthew. One more, one more question. What if someone comes to the elders with something personal they don't want the assembly to know? you know, be it a wife or husband's cheating or vice versa, or somebody stole money or whatever it may be, and they don't want it to get public like that. They want to handle it in-house privately. Well, what but, but handle what in-house privately? That they don't want the sin to be known by the assembly? Yeah, they just want the elders to know it, to deal with it. and, and so, so if a wife comes to the elders and says, my husband's doing this, and you put him out of the assembly now, yeah. No, that's not the way it works. That's not what, I don't think that's God's plan at all. All right. Thank you for answering that. So, so Matthew 18 says that when you take it to the church and the whole church would 
then make the final judge. And a wife who's been, who believes her husband's cheating on her, unfortunately, unless others realize it and recognize it, ultimately it's the church. I'll tell you experience I had, whether right or wrong, I'll tell you the experience I had. It wasn't handled the way I would have handled it, but in the end, I think, yeah. Clay, Jay, do you have something? Joe, sorry. Who? No, sorry. I thought I saw a hand. Oh, go ahead, Clay. I'll I'll, I'll say. Here's the experience. So I was teaching um, the midweek meeting at an assembly, not my own. And I had been for about two years. Um, They had one elder, really, who was functioning. That's it. And he had just assumed the position. I was driving home back to San Diego. I got a phone call from a young lady who started telling me about an issue of fornication in the assembly. It was pretty um, serious. It was long-term. It was very well hidden. And so it was going to be very difficult to get two witnesses or to prove. And in the end, um, I told the elder who happened to be Ken Daughters at the time, and we confronted the brother with his sin and he denied it. Um, she knew too many facts and too many figures. She was very believable. But at that point, we only had one witness. So we had it, had a, a meeting of the young men and the, and the elders who were um, at that time, a leadership team for the assembly. And we had wit- witnesses and he brought in a character witness and his character witness who was an unsaved girl who he, who he was working with said, she's upset with him because he slept with her once. Well, to me, that was a second witness that confirmed that there was fornication going on. And she left and his friend who was in the meeting went out and talked to her. She came back in and recanted what she said, even though I specifically asked her. So he's admitted that he slept with her once and she goes, yeah, you're supposed to be Christians and forgiving. You're not supposed to judge, be judgmental. So she didn't understand. She came back in and at that time she denied that she had said that. The brothers all got together and at that time they decided they didn't think they had enough evidence to discipline him or to excommunicate him. He was very popular. He was a door greeter every Sunday. He was... Um, a very popular man in the assembly. And and if he probably at one point in time probably would have been an elder when there was no one else, he would have been the type of person they put in as an elder. It took four more years while they basically removed him as a deacon and they basically made a note of it and didn't give him anything to do. It took four years And then he continued to act out about some other things. And when they confronted him about that, he admitted to the fornication and they put him out of the meeting. If they had put him out of the meeting with a divided group where the brothers weren't united, it would have split that assembly. And that would have been about the fourth split in the last 20 years that assembly would have went through. But by waiting on the Lord until everybody and the sin was manifest to everybody and being patient, once a sin became manifest to everybody, they put them out and nobody left. And my best guess, it would have been about half the assembly left if they put him out earlier. 
including some of the young men who were sitting at that table who didn't believe that he could be guilty of that. So once it finally became obvious to everybody and they put him out, it was done in such a just way. There was no split. The whole assembly supported it. He couldn't accuse anybody of being out to get him or trying to run him into the ground or just being jealous of him or whatever. And in the end, that patience and that deliberation actually paid off. And at the time, I thought we have two witnesses we need to act. And I probably would have acted upon those two witnesses. But he, Ken, wanted the unity of the brothers before anyone was put out. And when that unity was obtained, they put him out and there was no one who left and there was no split. And once that sin was finally dealt with, the Lord really started to bless the assembly. But I think he blessed them in the way they dealt with it. Not the way I would have dealt with it, but looking back, I think it was important to understand that the, the sin will be manifest. It's better to wait and be patient and have the witnesses and have the unity to discipline than to discipline too soon or to discipline because two brothers really see it as sin and want to do something or the elders really see it as sin and the church does not recognize it yet. And so I'm, I tend it's a lesson I think I've learned. I think I would be more patient. And um, when I teach it, I teach it to be um, more patient. So um, going on, the discipline um, should be transparent with clear and open communication to all parties. I don't believe it should be hidden. Um, the discipline should be impartial. And while this type of discipline is partial or respect or person that fails every time, when I was young, they were really big about um, disciplining teenagers and young people who were caught in fornication. But you had to be like an outsider or a visitor, never was an elder child, and their reputation could be terrible, and it could be a known fact that they were, they were not um, living a moral life, but they were never disciplined. It was always someone who wasn't somehow connected to the elders, and it was a visitor or an outsider. It was easy to make an example of them. And they willingly made examples of those type of peoples when, when their own children or their own friends' children, they never disciplined. And, that, and so being partial or respect to persons is never good. And the elders must help the body understand that sinners have broken fellowship with Christ and thus broken fellowship with the body. That ignoring the discipline will enable a brother to not see the need to come to repentance and nullify the very purpose of the assembly carried out in the discipline. There's an assembly of a young man I was discipling back east. One of the girls was pregnant out of wedlock. The assembly put him under discipline, and yet it was as if she was not under discipline. She was still invited to everything. She, they threw a bridal shower, or a baby shower for her. They did everything for her like there was no sin involved. And it was very heart-wrenching to some of the people in the assembly that there wasn't an understanding of the sin that was involved. And if you enable them and you treat them like they're still part of the social club, they'll never come to repentance. So there's, there's, there's no not to eat with them. There's a, in discipline, there is a sense that you need to make them feel shunned in a way so that they come to repentance, so that they acknowledge that they've sinned. And if you, and if they're still welcome to everything and treated like everything, um, and, and it's very difficult if you try, if it's your child who sinned and how you treat them and what you do, I think that's personal, but the rest of the assembly, I think, has to know. So the next question I'm going to ask, and as we're running out of time, is what is the twofold um, purpose of discipline? 
Restoration. Repentance. That's, okay. So there's there um so to correct actions that are detrimental to the body of Christ by first correction and then if necessary by exposing the character of the brother that needs correction by by actually removing them. And then um finally to restore discipline. All discipline should be with the purpose of restoration, the purpose of the sinner coming to repentance, to realizing that what they've done is serious and needs to be re repented of. Just mentioned the two passages, 2 Corinthians 2, 6 and 10 were in the references I sent out. And in 2, 6 and 10, Paul's addressing that they're not forgiving a brother who has repented. They've not forgiven a brother who's repented. And so um, how long should repentance last? How long should discipline last? How long should anything last? And, and that's a tough question and you have to know the individuals. Some people just bury them. I was, I was in an assembly, um, working with an assembly and I went in and one of the young men was put out for fornication. His girlfriend was gonna have a baby. And I said, who's working to, to restore him? And they just looked at me like, what's that? What's that? So I started working with him long distance because no one was working with him to bring about repentance and allow him to be restored. The good news is he's now restored to that assembly and, and going to that assembly. Feels terrible about what he did, but he's now restored to that assembly. Um, and then the next one is 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 13. I'm gonna read that. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance repenting for he felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death for see that earnestness of this godly grief has produced in you but also what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation what fear what longing what zeal what punishment at every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter so although i wrote to you it was not for the sake of of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because the Spirit has been refreshed by you all. And we do not have time to go into the whole passage about what are signs of repentance or how someone demonstrates repentance, but the question is, what's the difference between godly sorrow, worldly sorrow? In this, in the in the ESV, they say um, godly grief or worldly grief. What's the difference between those two? Worldly grief could just be, man, I'm sorry I got caught, <laughs> and uh, I don't like the what's happening to me, and and um, people aren't being nice, but I will kind of go along with the flow. That's, that's, we don't really hold people accountable much anymore in our society. So, so I agree. So worldly grief is sorrow over the consequences. Yeah. Sorrow over the consequences. And there's two great examples of that in the New Testament. One is Judas that was very sorrowful to tears, but could find no relief because he was sorrow for the consequences, not for his act. And then the other one is Esau, we read about in Hebrews, that was sorrowful to tears, but found no repentance because he was sorrowful for the consequence of his act, not realizing the sin of his act himself. Godly sorrow is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And Psalms 51 with David is, and, every, and you recognize the sin, that you've sinned against God 
and you've sinned against your brother and therefore you have godly sorrow. And um, what is necessary for, for um, discipline to take place? When you think about that, uh, repent, um, restoration should be, should be done when the brother shows true godly sorrow. And whatever that timeline is, is however long it takes him to come to the point where he's truly sorrowful over his actions. So what is necessary for discipline to take place? A kind of a repetition of a wrong. It's not, it's not dealt out the very first time. Okay, it, it takes two witnesses. So it's like the like this, um, same definition of an elders. There must, um, Deuteronomy 17, 6, at the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to perish. There needs to be multiple witnesses. So um, we might be convicted on our own mind. We might believe that about a brother, but unless we have witnesses, we are not to act. And um, it's better to wait on God to make the sin manifest than to get, get ahead of God by acting without his approval or authority. When we act outside his instructions, that is what we're doing. We can't act on the authority of God when we don't follow his instructions. And his instructions to have it established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So if one person comes and says, I know this is happening, that person knowing it happened is not enough. There has to be another proof. There has to be someone else who knows it's happening or seen it happen, or because we can make false assumptions, we can get it wrong. That person can be terribly trustworthy, but make a false assumption, mis misunderstood, misjudge the situation. So poor evidence is key. Um, proper evidence is key, and often we charge ahead without it. So the so the, in order for discipline to take place, you must have the evidence. You must have the proof. And then the last one is decisions about doctrine. Who makes the decision about doctrine in the assembly? Would it be, well, the elders I think should lead the conversation. Yes. But uh, the, I would tend to think it'd be the men of the assembly would. I believe that I believe that the elders who are apt to teach should definitely be able to teach doctrine. They should lead in such a manner that the rest should follow. But ultimately, it should be an it should be an agreement. If it's going to be this is this is going to be in our doctrinal statement. This is something we believe. It should be an agreement of everybody, not not unanimous agreement because you might have someone who doesn't believe it. That's okay. But it should be the vast majority says yes. That's what we believe. Because our fellowship is based on more than just breaking bread. It's based on common things, the faith that we commonly hold and share. And so that, that faith has to be have certain points in it that we all agree on, in my, in my estimation. So, and then um, um, we should never force a decision of any of these things, should never be forced. And there might be times where we humble ourselves and seek outside help and say, you know, we're wrestling with this. We don't understand it. Can you help us? Can you, can you come in and, and talk to us about this decision we're facing that we're struggling with? And I've seen assemblies, um, people in the assembly go to the elders and say, can we, there are several people you, we think you could consult that could help you. And the elders being very stubborn and saying, no, 
this is our assembly, we're gonna take care of it ourselves and we're gonna make the decision. And sometimes make a very poor decision when they make that decision. All right, it's late. Comments, questions? I've done a lot of the talking. Joe? You know, when you were mentioning about the, um, that the elder shouldn't have a letter and read it to the assembly after they made their decision and so on. And I, um, and I really agree that, you know, that um, the excommunication should be done by the, by the, the assembly. I know of an assembly that um, excommunicated a couple in their family um, in, in the discipline should have been under Romans 16. It was, there was no moral sin in, involved and so on, but, um, but there was a rift between the, the husband of this uh, couple and one of the other elder, one of, one of the elders, and, and um, for a long time. And, you know, and it was, you know, this overbearing elder that convinced the other elders to, you know, because he just didn't want to deal with them anymore, to just get rid of them. So, um, you know, one of the elders didn't even want to do it, and he was coerced into, into agreeing, and, and, and the other elder, one of the other elders uh, didn't, you know, didn't uh, really know what to do, and he just went along with it. And, and the result was that, you know, that they, they destroyed this family, and and um, and now that you know, and their children are bitter, and and they're bitter. And I personally believe that, and and, and it was the vast majority of the assembly didn't agree with this decision. And and um, and I believe that you know, personally believe that there's there's a dark cloud hanging over that hanging over that assembly still because they sinned against that. Um, against that family and it's only because they did it and they, did, and, they, and they didn't even allow a hearing before the before the assembly to make any kind of a decision it was terrible I, I will tell you that that's happened time and time and time again and if you read the social media from people who are ex-brethren almost every one of them have some story like that to tell when I was probably nine or ten I forget how old I was I was probably in third grade, maybe fourth grade, because we lived at, at a house when I was in third and fourth grade, we went to an exclusive meeting and um, they read a brother out on Wednesday night. And it was traumatic. <laughs> he left silently, the wife didn't leave so silently. She pointed out every sin in the place before she left. And, it, and as a young man, it was traumatic. But what had happened was it was as simple as going, they ran a, a weekly camp, a, one, a yearly camp that was a week long. They rented a facility. All the assemblies got together and had a camp meeting where they decided who the camp manager was going to be, what facility they were going to rent, how they were going to hold it. And, they, and the, one of the leading brothers in Southern California put forth his protege to be the camp manager. And another brother stood up and started giving reasons why he shouldn't be the camp manager. And they accused that brother of railing against the other brother by pointing out his weaknesses. And then they laughed and my dad was at that meeting and he came back and my dad was 28 at the time, came back and, and we got contacted from that Northern, uh, the LA assembly saying, you need to read this brother out for his actions at that meeting. And they circulated a letter among the brother and saying, sign this letter, sign this letter, sign this letter, we're putting this brother out. And my dad wouldn't sign it because he was there and he just thought it was a one time, both brothers had sort of lost a, their temper and acted in the flesh because they both got excited with each other. And they had an annual conference and my dad just got plastered by everybody who came, why he wouldn't sign that letter, why he wouldn't sign that letter, why he wouldn't sign that letter. They read him out. We probably lasted another six months and we ended up leaving because they, couldn't 
get over my dad not signing that letter. And he finally walked out because they just wouldn't stop hassling him because he didn't agree with their actions. And so Joe's example is not unusual. I've seen it too many times. And the bull elder gets something in his mind and the other elders won't stand up to it. It's never presented to the assembly. And he rules and reigns assembly. And by force, he puts someone under discipline, someone he might have a personal issue with, someone that he doesn't like. I've been to assemblies and had elders tell me, the best thing for this assembly, if brother so-and-so would leave, he's a pain in our neck. Because he, he, he points out the times they err from scripture, the times that maybe they're forcing things or they're acting, they're, they're exercising dominion or they're not waiting on the Lord or whatever they're doing. And he points those things out and they're not happy with him because they would like to run the smooth administration not have anybody challenge him on anything. So just because a brother challenges, it doesn't mean he should be put out on discipline. But it happens at, at times because people force the discipline. It's not assembly-wide. It's elders making their own rules. And, and I very much consider when elders decide who's going to be put out on discipline and never presented to the church, then it's acting in dominion. It's ruling over the assembly with the dominion-type rule that the world exercises. The, the David, one of the issues why discipline should be public is because it's supposed to be a warning to the rest of the assembly. So if you quietly discipline, it doesn't act, it doesn't act as a detriment or a warning to the rest of the assembly. I do believe discipline should be public if it's supposed to be a warning. Well, I think it's a recognition of somebody's position, not that the assembly places that them that individual in that position but by their actions they have placed themselves outside the camp and then the assembly comes together and just recognizes that individual's yes. position right yeah and, Clay, that, and, and that's a passage that's a passage in titus right that they're self-condemned that's a passage that says that they're that they're a so-called brother they they their their actions have removed their their ability for your ability to consider them part of the fellowship because you doubt that they're really a Christian. Clay, I know our time is gone, but one item that we didn't touch on that maybe you could just briefly mention is what about, what are your thoughts on communication to other assemblies on discipline? Uh, so, <laughs> We got, I got caught up in that just recently. So we had, I invite young men to my assembly to speak. And I was on an assembly and the in-laws of that young man was sitting there um, eating lunch with me after the meeting. And they said, did you know this young man is under discipline in his assembly? And I said, well, I certainly hope not because he's speaking at my assembly next Sunday. And they said, yeah, he's under discipline. He's not supposed to speak in assemblies. So I came back and I picked up the phone and I called the elders of that assembly who I know well. And I said, uh, is he under discipline? And they said, well, yes. And we said, well, he's speaking at my assembly this Sunday. Don't you think you should have told me? And they go, we'll get back to you. So 24 hours later, I got a call back and they said, well, what we told him was not to take any new speaking engagements, but he could finish his old speaking engagements. And it's like, He's under, and, and so I said, well, you know, it would have been nice if I made that decision if I wanted someone who was under discipline in his local assembly to come speak. Shouldn't that have been my decision and not his? 
if you place them under discipline, but they still have not announced to any other assemblies. And this young man visits assemblies and is very active in visiting assemblies. Doesn't speak anymore, but he was very active in just showing up every Sunday and, and attend an assembly that they're keeping it all a secret. So I, I'm aghast. When we did put the brother under discipline, we sent a letter out to everyone. And if anybody wanted to come, and we met with three different assemblies and, and explained why we put him under discipline and what actions led to that. And, um, but yes, um, unfortunately we live in a church hopping age where you just go to a different assembly if you're put under discipline. You just don't mention it. And if you don't publish it or, or advertise it, then I'm, I'm a firm believer you need to clean up your own issues and deal with your own issues. And if you just pass your problems on to another assembly, you're just causing another assembly to have to deal with those issues. If he was rebellious in your assembly and sinning in your assembly, he's going to sin in the next one and be rebellious in the next one. So you better warn them, at least warn them of what they're getting into if they, if they take him in and let them know that there's issues. And to, to, and as Dave said, to sweep everything under the rug so your own assembly doesn't know it and no surrounding assemblies know it and it's someone who's well known in travels. Uh, and I'll tell you, I was, the same thing happened to me with palms as someone was put under discipline and I was shocked and they swore me to secrecy, which I, I did, I didn't tell anyone but that person was a well-known person and if he had and he was well known to travel and no one knew he was under discipline at any time and i know they were trying to save his reputation but you know but part of that issue is we're so slow to restore if we weren't so resistant to restore we wouldn't keep things secret hoping to restore them by the time the news got out i think is what they're doing because they think if we let the news out everybody will just write him put him in the you know black box and never let him out, put him in prison and never let him out. So it's a twofold issue. It's, it, secrecy is not right, in my opinion. And we're secret, we tend to be secretive because we're afraid people will um, not be able to forgive and restore that brother. And what about an assembly's obligation to recognize that discipline where there's examples like Joe gave where the discipline was inappropriate, right? Yeah, and so, we had, um, we had a family come to our assembly and um, that assembly used a single cup and the father and his children had issues with drinking a single cup. And so his children were accepted into fellowship, but when the single cup came around, they didn't drink of it. So the elders there put the children under discipline for lacking trusting the Lord and being able to drink out of a single cup. Didn't accommodate them, didn't try to make it so they could let their conscience not be damaged. They put them under discipline. Then when the father sat with them in the back row, because they made the children sit in the back row, when the father sat with them in the back row, they removed the family and put the family under discipline. And the family, um, and the father let them know what he was thinking on his way out, which was very disrespectful. And so he came to us and he said, I'm under, I've been placed under discipline and removed from this fellowship, but um, I will, I'd like to attend here if you allow me to break bread, I will, but if you don't, we won't. So we went and sat down and met with the other elders from that other assembly, talked to, had two meetings with them, talked it out. They were just mainly offended at his um, disrespect on his way out the door 
if he was willing to apologize and confess with that, they didn't have a problem with them breaking bread with us. So we went back with him. He confessed that he was disrespectful, that he had lost his mind and acted in the flesh. They accepted his apology and gave them blessing to break bread at our assembly. So um, we tried to work it out rather than just ignore their wishes. And in the end, they were they were they worked with us and were willing to 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 um, allow to give their blessing for him to break bread with us. But most, most assemblies anymore do not, do not ask for letters, usually don't ask why you left the last place, they're just happy to have you. And so that's, I think, I think that's a little too loose for me, but um, I think each one has to be. And once again, coming from a known assembly where I know the elders or coming from another assembly where I know discipline is haphazard and discipline isn't right and they tend to be vengeful in writing letters or not writing letters is a whole different issue. And I know some of you guys come from a system where um, they use the letters as an issue of control. And I'm aware of that. And I, it wouldn't bother me if someone didn't come from a let, with a letter from that group. And I would have handled that totally different. Uh, so kind of off the topic, and I know we're tight on time, so maybe we don't have to keep going, but I apologize if it's already come up because I had a couple calls I had to take. Um, one of the questions I have, because I've seen it happen before, uh, is when people are put away, say, for fornication, let's just use that one, but they've come and repented it. So they, they have come and brought it before the church or the elders, and then they're put away for it. Um, so I, I guess I, I can see it a little bit, but I also can see that they're, they've repented and they're not living in sin anymore. So what do we do in those kinds of cases? Uh, I might offer an opinion and I'd love some feedback on it. I kind of see this as a point of a very serious sin that needs to be brought before the church. But it could be an issue where, like I said before, uh, it could be a public rebuke and not necessarily a putting away because they're not currently living in sin. Um, I'd just like to hear an opinion on that. So the assembly I dealt with in that issue is a young couple was engaged and she ended up getting pregnant. And they came forth to the church and said, we failed, we were wrong and confessed their failure. And they were not put under discipline. They were basically rebuked in front of the church. They then confessed they were no longer sinning. They got married like two months later and they, and that's how they handle it. And I, and I think in your case, if that's a type of situation, because I believe once a person confesses their sin and shows godly sorrow, they should be restored. If they come forward to confess their sins and they show godly sorrow in the confession of that sin, then you might discipline and restore them in the same moment, almost sort of idea, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. Cause I, I've seen it done uh, both ways and I've seen it, the restoration part, like I almost feel like for somebody that comes and, and is repentant of it. And obviously it's up to the elders to discern whether they're, you know, truly repentant, but to put them away almost drives them out and ostracizes them when we should be at that point trying to heal them. I feel. Well, and that becomes a problem is, 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 as, Paul points out here in in um, in first second Corinthians two and and six, 
uh, in seven is that we don't restore, we don't forgive. You know, I've heard people say, well, at minimum of a year for fornication, two years for this, and I'm going, where do you get numbers from? Where, where, where do you get minimum punishment, minimum sentence, you know, sentence standards from? I mean, what, you know, is that in Hezekiah where there's sentence standards? I, I don't understand where you're coming from with that, you know, because I don't see that in scripture. We don't know how long this incident in First Corinthians was between the first and second. We're not told how long it took for the brother to repent. But Paul's chastising him for not for 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 causing him, you know, for holding him as an arm's length and not accepting the fact that he's repented. And so along those lines, and like I said, I'm sorry I keep talking, but restoration. I feel like we've talked a lot about discipline, but. Uh, if you have a comment on it, and I know your I know your point on it because you've mentioned it a few times, but it shouldn't it be like a a real forward looking thing and and like almost like an elder is assigned to work with somebody for restoration. And I so I, I, it's just my personal feeling. I, I really I've seen this go so bad, and I've seen it go right, and people come back and uh, not necessarily better for it, but they have you know, flourished under the right elders uh, because the elders had the eye of restoration from the beginning. So as you read, if we had time to go over 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 13, one of the things that shows godly repentance is a willing to be accountable in the future. And so a mark of godly repentance is that you're willing to work with someone and be held accountable. You've You've sinned in this area. Are you willing to be accountable now that you don't slip back in that sin? Whether it's, you know, someone got a DUI and, um, you know, he's repentant of it. He's rebuked in front of the assembly. Is he then accountable for someone to say, have you drank today? Have you, did you drink this week? And ask that question. If you're truly repentant, you're going to be more than willing to say yes or no, or I slipped or no, I'm doing really well because you're truly repentant. When you're not repentant and you're just worried about the consequences, then you're going to do something like, I don't want you, I, I'm, that's an invasion of my privacy. No, that's overbearing. No, I don't want that because that's the difference between godly sorrow, in my opinion, or, or godly grief and worldly sorrow. Because once again, if you've truly cleared yourself of it, if you truly have an indignation over the sin, if you really have a fear, a godly fear, if you have a longing and a zeal, to, to separate yourself from that sin, you want any help you can get to keep from sinning again. But if you don't have those things, and that to me is a sign that you're really not, you're really, this isn't godly grief or godly sorrow. This is, this is just God, this is just grief over the circumstances and the consequences of getting caught. So depend, you're, 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 we don't, you know, that's a great passage to teach on about what godly sorrow is. But there's certain things that have to mark you if you have truly godly sorrow. And if those things don't mark you, then I, my personal doubt is that you really have sorrow. And one of those is a willingness to be accountable. Matt, you haven't said anything. Yeah, I got in late, so I was just trying to take it all in to gather kind of what what was said. Um, I'll just say this. We do have a question and answer session. Next next week. So I, I think 
I think uh, I have some questions about this that maybe right. maybe were covered, maybe they weren't. Um, so I think right. let's uh, let's all try to write down some of our questions, and I think it, it's it'll be really good to to go over it next week. So, um, and besides that, I'm absolutely beat. <laughs> All right, so next week we're going to um, talk a little bit about wise, and then it's going to be a question and answer time. So um, anybody can answer the questions. So write your questions down, come ready to answer questions. Um, I'm not the only one with experience here, so um, feel free to answer as, and thank you, Jeff, for your, Jeff left. Jeff's gone. Thank you for Jeff's participation. Um, and, and Matt, I told them about the, uh, the dove hunt, they're planning on holding it. They're not sure they're gonna have a meeting room to hold the to meetings in, but they're planning on, on having the Bible studies anyway. And um, there's, a, there's a phone number. If you want a room, you need to call Dave Dixon Jr. and reserve a room. Yeah, I, I got them. Thank you. And it's filling up fast is what he told me. They have a block of rooms reserved and they're filling up fast. They probably had 40 or 50 guys last year. So I don't know how many they're expecting this year. So, well, uh, we can chat afterwards. Dick, do you mind closing in prayer for us? Say it again. Do you mind closing in prayer for us? Oh, uh, you bet. Thanks. Father. <clears throat> Thank you for the wisdom that the Spirit of God gives through the Word of God that we can remember and check up on and be guided by, that we're not on our own to figure things out. And for that, we give you thanks. We long to be an assembly that is, is doing things well in your sight, one that you can bless and one that you can guide. Give us willing hearts to follow you closely and to put away the foolishness that we get caught up with in the world so that our minds might be trained to think biblically and our hearts might be softened to act as your son would act. We're grateful again for your presence with us. We look to you for help for the next several days as we finish out the week. We're grateful for your hand on, on our members who hurt and who have needs. Thank you for knowing us and for working with us. And we ask this for the glory of your son in his name. Amen. Amen.